water is one of three accounts in the Gospels. Um, Matthew tells a story, and in Matthew's Gospel, it includes Peter walking on the water as well. In Mark, it's there as well. Luke is the only one that doesn't. And it's, in, it's significant that in all three accounts, it follows the feeding of the 5,000. But there are differences in each account. And I'd encourage you to go home and look at the other two. Because we're all, they're all making slightly different points. And particularly different is John's Gospel. We need to be looking this morning at what he says and why John says it. What is the significance of some of the detail? Because it will give us clues as to John's purpose in including this in his gospel. Let's just get ourselves into the story. Imagine, if you can, that you are one of these disciples. You have just seen Jesus miraculously feed 5,000 men plus many others. The people are saying that Jesus is surely the prophet who's come into the world. Referring back to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that someone like Moses, through whom God had provided food and water for people in the desert, was coming. They were expecting this prophet to do more than that. We're told that they were intending, the crowd were intending to make Jesus king. And Jesus, knowing their intentions, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. If we read the synoptics, we would be told that he went up the mountain to pray. But John doesn't mention that. When evening came, we're told, in Mark and um, Matthew, it's immediately something happens. But there's a, there's a time scale here in John's Gospel. When evening came, the disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. In John's Gospel, Jesus doesn't tell them to do so. Um, it could be their own initiative. Have the disciples just gone off on their own without Jesus? Do they think Jesus is going to follow them or what? We don't know. But we are told later in this passage that there was only one boat. And that is significant to the response of the crowd who'd been at the feeding of the 5,000. We'll come back to it in a moment. Jesus hasn't gone with them. It gets dark. And we're told that Jesus has not yet joined them. Now what's going on here? Do they expect Jesus to join them? And if so, how is he going to get to them on the lake when there's only one boat? Or is John anticipating what's going to happen, but the disciples are unaware of it? The key thing is that Jesus is not there, and John makes this implicit, explicit. The disciples may be just getting on with the ordinariness of living, 
just getting on with what they need to do and so on. A strong wind is blowing and the waves start to grow rough. And when we're told that they row for the boat for about three or three and a half miles. Now, why does John include that detail? Well, we need to know that at this point, the lake is no more than four miles across. They're only half a mile from shore. In the other accounts, we're told that this happens in the middle of the lake. And the difference in John's account is important. If you are one of the disciples at this point, how are you feeling? And what are you thinking? We're then told that they see Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. Something completely unexpected happens. Something sudden, something unusual. Jesus does not come to them in response to any call that they've made or, according to John's Gospel, any sense of need that they have. We're not told that they are, 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 are finding it difficult to get across the lake or whatever. But something happens. There's an intervention by God, by Jesus, into that situation. We're told that they're terrified. We're not told here whether they know it's Jesus or not. Matthew and Mark, they think he's a ghost. You see, something's going on here. Something about the supernatural. Something that's actually quite scary is taking place here. And no wonder they are terrified. And Jesus is walking on the water. Now, just a little side here. That phrase, walking on the water, as a, 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 a sort of textual thing, actually could, could be walking by the water. Because the same phrase is used in John chapter 21, when Jesus is on the shore and calls to the disciples in the boat at the Sea of Tiberias. And some people have interpreted that Jesus is on the shoreline and there is no miracle of walking on the water. Now I think it's important that we see this as a miracle. The miracle is important for what John is trying to communicate to his disciples about Jesus. Jesus says to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And the order of those words is important. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus says, take heart, it is I, have no fear. Matthew and Mark 
have put Jesus' words, it is I, into a much more human and physical setting. Yes, it is I is still there, but it's preceded and followed by words that address the human situation. That situation of fear. That isn't so in John's Gospel. John puts, it is I, at the beginning, because he wants to emphasise the spiritual significance. And by doing so, he's declaring something about who Jesus is. He is saying, I am. It's I. I am. In other words, God. And it's interesting that following this incident in John's Gospel, we have that whole discourse with the crowd which includes the first of John's I am statements in his gospel. The statement, I am the bread of life. And we will discover, if you're going through John's gospel, when he says I am, it's just a God expression. Like God said to Moses, I am. Just say, I am has sent me. In other words, it's a declaration of being God. And John's intention is that, he, that the disciples know that it is Jesus who is the Son of God who comes to them walking on the water. That's the big thing in John's Gospel. And the significance of walking on the water, what's that? Well, it's Jesus getting his disciples' attention. It's, an, it's a miracle happening that cannot be explained by human reasoning. It's something out of the ordinary. He comes to what, them as the one who's already performed a miracle of feeding 5,000 people. It's actually seeing the, that the miraculous produces fear. The disciples were terrified that people can be disturbed when they cannot rationally explain what's happening. This miracle has the potential to open them up to the supernatural. It also has the potential to push us into trying to explain miracles away. He's getting their attention, but he's actually opening us up, moving us on from just thinking at the very natural plane to think in terms of a supernatural reality and not just a natural. Jesus is revealing the divine presence and power of God. That God is a supernatural God, not limited to the natural. He's a God of miracles. He did not need a boat to get to his disciples. He has supernatural power over the sea, over the chaos. He is above the waves, naturally and in authority. And being God, having resources outside himself, he doesn't need any resources outside himself to meet real needs and to do what's necessary. That's very important. I don't know 
I think we get so used to living naturally. You know, what we were saying earlier about the COVID-19, it's very easy to just see that at a very natural level, and we'll come back to it in a moment or two. After Jesus has spoken, it says, then they were willing to take him into the boat. I find that an interesting statement. They were willing to take him into the boat. Mark tells us in his gospel that he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus and Peter get into the boat and the wind dies down. Here, the circumstances do not change. But how do we understand John's words then? They were willing to take Jesus into the boat. Well, it indicates to me that Jesus, as Son of God, with all his power and authority, does not take charge and get into the boat regardless. He waits until the disciples invite him to get in. And if we are actually being confronted here by Jesus, Son of God, miraculous, supernatural, God will not over, uh, will not force himself into our lives. We have to somehow be willing to, uh, to have him come miraculously and supernatural into our lives and into our situations. And it also indicates that the disciples have somehow registered something of what the walking on the water and Jesus' words are about. They do need and want the presence of a supernatural God who is there for them, sufficient to meet all their needs, even if they're a little tentative. They embrace, they accept the miracle. They accept the unusual and don't try and explain it away. And I just wonder if it also indicates that they are respectful of this Jesus God who has such power and authority over creation, maybe in awe of him. Matthew tells us at the end of his account that those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Is something like that going on here. And then John tells us that immediately the boat reached the shore. Jesus gets in the boat, and John records a miracle within a miracle. An instant arrival at their destination. Jesus Power and authority is exercised in delivering the disciples out of the storm and into the place where they were heading and to safety. The only possible deliverance is in nothing other than the person and work of Jesus, Son of God. The disciples have used their own efforts to get them as far as they have, but the final part is down entirely to the miraculous power and intervention of God. And this miracle comes at almost the last minute. 
the disciples would probably not have been aware that they were so close to the end of their journey, even naturally speaking. And they would certainly not be aware that Jesus, Son of God, was going to come and not change the circumstances, but get them out of the circumstances. And then finally, in John's account, we have the response of the crowd who'd remained on the shore near where the feeding of the 5,000 had happened. They realised that only one boat had been there. And Jesus hadn't, ent hadn't entered it with his disciples, but they'd gone away alone. Why does John record that? Because it emphasises the miracle. And it made them wonder. He's departed without any transport. What has he done? Where's he gone? How did he get there? It provokes the questions. And often we link miracles, signs and wonders together. A miracle is a sign. A sign that points to something or to someone. And it makes people wonder. It arouses curiosity. It causes people to ask questions. And as people ask questions, they're on track to finding the only possible answer in a miracle is God. Matthew and Mark, in their gospel, have Jesus... Um, arriving on the shore and they bring all the sick people to Jesus from all around the region. The emphasis there is on the healing power of Jesus. In John, the emphasis is on the person of Jesus who is seen to be God. Well, that's all very interesting. So what do we make of all this today in our world this morning, Milford Baptist Church. Let's just try and apply it to our lives now. If you allow the boat to represent your life, you get into the boat and you start to cross the lake. You're carrying on your life. You might sense that Jesus has initiated your journey or you may have decided it for yourself, or circumstances have demanded it. You've had no choice, but you are travelling along on your journey of life. But Jesus has not yet joined you. He's not in the boat. The circumstances are difficult, it's dark, you're rowing hard, the wind is strong against you, the waves are rough, your boat is tossed about on a stormy sea. It takes all your human effort to keep going and Jesus is not in the boat. It's all down to you. It's particularly difficult if you're fiercely independent. I've just got to battle on. Is that where you are? Are you just battling on in your life, carrying on your journey, independent of Jesus? That he's not there in the boat with you. 
and you've got no thought or expectation or hope that a miracle might happen. Even this morning. You may have experienced miracles happening for other people. You may have even been involved in them. But somehow there doesn't seem to be a miracle for you. You may want to decide exactly what miracle you're looking for and it's not happening. You may be questioning where is God. It's hard when we experience the absence of God and when we seem to need him most. You may be going through a difficult time. Life is hard. It may be illness, relationship difficulties, work or financial pressures. It might be the darkness of depression or loss and there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. How much longer do I have to endure this? Please God, give me a break. Heal me, sort out the difficulties, do something. You may even beginning, begin to doubt his power to do anything. You wonder when it will come to an end. Or are you just getting on with living? Normally, naturally, no expectation, no real need. It was interesting that as I was preparing this sermon, I'd reached this point in my preparation and I had a, um, a break and had uh, a meal. And I was watching the TV coverage about the coronavirus. Um, and I realised that the word this morning might just be relevant to this situation. We are not just individuals in our boats, but we're in a national, international, fearful, potentially life-threatening situation. Where is God in all this? How are we responding? Goes back to what I was saying earlier. Are we in any sense finding God in that situation? Is he in the boat with us in this coronavirus situation? Is he with us? Do we have any possible expectation that he might just come unexpectedly and do an unexpected thing and actually change things, take us to a different place in the whole journey? We may be caught up in the natural and are unaware that God might just miraculously turn up as he approaches your boat or our boat or the nation's boat. We may not immediately recognize him. Miracles are not commonplace. They're out of the ordinary. You may not have asked him to come, but he comes. He takes the initiative to do whatever he knows will be good for us. Back in November, I went um, to Argentina for three weeks. I went with a group of eight people. We went to do some children's ministry. We went to do some children's leaders training. We went to experience uh, that sort of revival situation that's been going on in Argentina for many years. And we went for a holiday. 
Um, and uh, I, I went there. I knew what, was, what to expect. I knew that the style would not probably not be to my preference, but I decided to give myself to it. And I wanted to take advantage of every opportunity. I'd seen God, I saw God do some amazing things, some healing, people getting saved, some deliverance ministry and so on. I was touched uh, a number of times by the Holy Spirit and I'd taken a book with me. The book was called, I'd Like You More If You Were More Like Me. And it's a book about getting real, about getting close. It's a book about relationships with God and others, about intimacy and connection, vulnerability and becoming real. Now, the combination of being in Argentina with the immediacy of God and reading the book led to a very significant healing and release during the middle week of our trip. An incident had happened on the Wednesday night when I felt unjustly judged and blamed for something that was not my fault. It was quite a minor thing, but it had a significant effect, much bigger than was warranted. And I, was, I withdrew and I was emotionally upset. And it persisted to the following day. We were all in our apartment and I retreated to our bedroom. Chris, my wife, said to me, are you not okay? No. Is it to do with what happened last evening? Well, yes, that's when it started. Then she said, you just need to deal with it, let it go. And went to join the others. And I just broke down. I couldn't stop crying. After about half an hour, Chris came back, realised that something was amiss and asked if I wanted someone to come and pray. I said, yes. And God turned up in a very immediate way. All seven came and stood round the bed. I just lay there sobbing uncontrollably with gut-wrenching, painful emotion. I felt like I was being torn apart. They prayed, they had words for me, and after about three quarters of an hour, I felt sufficiently with it to share something from the book which I felt was appropriate. And this is what I read. In one of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, a boy named Eustace is turned into a dragon. Later, he's invited by Aslan the lion, the Christ figure in the story, to bathe in a pool that can cleanse Eustace, remake him and rebirth him. But first, he's told that he must undress. He must shed his old dragon skin. He tries to do this, but it takes a long time he peels off the hard, scaly dragon skin. When he goes to get into the water, he looks down at his foot and notices it's just as hard and scaly as it was before he started. There's another whole layer of dragon skin under the first layer. He tries again, but the same thing keeps happening. 
until finally he despairs. Then Aslan says to him, you will have to let me do it. And here's how Eustace describes the experience. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff off. Uh, as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. I know that this, in, in this experience, God was healing me from the pain over many years of being misunderstood, of being accused and blamed for things that were not my fault, of not being appreciated for who I am and what I can do. Now, I had dealt as fully as I could with the wounding, forgiving, praying, blessing, and this had had some effect, like Eustace had tried to peel off the dragon skins. But now, Aslan, God had come and said, you'll have to let me do it. And as he healed me, he was setting me free to be a boy again, to be my real self, not having to fit a mould that isn't me, to not be affected by it anymore by other people's opinions of me, but to rest satisfied and content in God's deep love for me, as I am. And since then, I've experienced a more immediate sense of God's love and presence that has made me easily, but positively, vulnerable to emotion. And I no longer wake up feeling heavy every morning. And there have been significant changes in me regarding some relationships. Now, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you because God stepped in unexpectedly and did something that I couldn't do on my own. Jesus is walking on the water. He's demonstrating in a miraculous way that he has authority over the natural created world, over your circumstances, over the coronavirus. And when people ask you how you are, you may say, oh, I'm managing okay under the circumstances. But Jesus is above the circumstances. He's on top of them, he's over them. He's not overcome by them, he overcomes them. 
And he speaks to each one of us this morning. It is I. I am. This is God, a supernatural God, a God of miracles. I'm here, I'm present now, alive in the midst of all of you and all of you that all you are facing. He may be wanting to get your attention, to alert you to who he is and what he can do. The question is, are we willing to take him into our boat? However tentative you may feel, Invite him to come and be part of all that's happening to you and around you. Don't try to dictate what this will mean. Trust him. And if you are willing, simply ask this miracle-working God who is Jesus to come and occupy your boat. Occupy your life in the very real circumstances that you face. And as he steps into our boat, your boat, we may discover another miracle. That of bringing us to our desired destination or the destination he wants to take us to. In my case, it was the destination of being a boy again. Even at this moment when things seem dark, we may be very close to the end. We don't know what is just up ahead and round the corner about to happen, but God does. And it's said that the darkest hour is just before the dawn. We mustn't give up because we may be just on the brink of a miraculous breakthrough and we could immediately reach the shore. And with Jesus, Son of God, in our boat, anything becomes possible. Let's trust the God of miracles and let's trust that he knows when to come unexpectedly. You might know the song, My Lighthouse. Do you know it? Yeah. That line in the song, I will trust the promise. He will carry me safe to shore. Now, I have to confess that when I came last time, I was aware that I was coming today and I was going to be preaching about Jesus walking on the water. And I mentioned a song which we're going to sing together. Uh, and I thought, because I hadn't really read John's Gospel account at that point, I thought it would be about uh, Jesus walking on the water and Peter walking on the water and so on and so forth. And this song is particularly appropriate to that. Um, and I'd given the song uh, in time for musicians to practice and so on and then I thought actually it doesn't quite fit <laughs> to what I'm saying this morning but then I looked at it and uh, it's called it's you call perhaps if we could have the words up for the song um, you call me out upon the waters the great unknown where feet may fail and there I find you in the mystery. In oceans deep, my faith will stand. And then we flick to the... My soul... Uh, when oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace. For I am yours and you are mine. And flip to the next one. <laughs> um, your grace abounds in deepest waters. Your sovereign hand will be my guide. 
where feet may fail and fear surrounds me. You've never failed and you won't start now. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the water. So take me deeper than my feet could ever wander and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Saviour. So we're going to sing it, even though it doesn't tightly fit what I've been saying this morning. But you can cope with that, can't you?